You may have heard that Ukrainian Defense Minister Alexei Reznikov was sacked this weekend. It's a big story, and one of the few we've heard about the Ukrainian conflict lately. We talked about fatigue mm. in Europe. Let me ask you about fatigue here in the U.S. There is maybe some kind of uh, Ukraine fatigue. I am worried about the fatigue of the public opinion in the United States. The news industry is biased towards, not surprisingly, what's new. So in a long and grinding war, global attention drifts. The news is also biased towards stories with grand narratives. National ideologies, clashing civilizations, how superpowers are moving their pieces across the global chessboard. From Romania here, Romania is a NATO country. Even as Putin and Erdogan talk about reviving this deal. Okay, we're going to take a closer look now at the impact that the conflict in Ukraine is having on African nations. Stories that are both about entire populations and no one in particular. At the outbreak of the war in February 2022, Marina Sankina flew from her home in Vancouver to the Ukrainian-Polish border to volunteer as a first respondent at a transition refugee camp for Ukrainians fleeing the war. The center was set up by the Joint Distribution Committee, one of the world's largest and oldest Jewish humanitarian organizations. In Poland, they set up shelters, community centers, and a whole network of people, employees and volunteers, Jews and non-Jews, who facilitate extracting Ukrainians from battle zones and resettling them in safe countries. This is the CJN Daily, sponsored by Metropia. Today on our show, I speak with Marina Sankina about her new book, Ukrainian Portraits, being released on September 1st, 2023. Each chapter focuses on and tells the story of a single person or family she met from among the thousands who pass through the refugee center each day. I'm Zach Hoffman, and this is what Jewish Canada sounds like for Tuesday, September 5th, 2023. Beth David Hebrew School is now accepting new students. One of Toronto's most dynamic, egalitarian, conservative congregations is offering personalized Hebrew lessons, hands-on learning, exciting field trips, and small group activities, all with a hot dinner included. This is Jewish exploration that will last your children a lifetime. Classes run weekly on Monday nights from 5 to 7.15 p.m. starting September 18th. To learn more and enroll, visit BethDavid.com or email Adina, that's A-D-I-N-A, at BethDavid.com. Marina Sankina was born and raised in Moscow. She has family both in Russia and Ukraine. And in 1987, she and her two sons emigrated from the former Soviet Union to start a new life here in Canada. She's a writer, former CBC producer and broadcaster, and professor of Russian literature and culture. She joins me now from her home in Vancouver. Welcome to the CJN Daily. Thank you very much. I wanted to hear a little bit about how this trip came to be. When the war broke out, uh, when Putin attacked Ukraine, I literally lost myself. I just couldn't do anything. I couldn't write. I couldn't work. I couldn't teach. I was so flagabasted by that. And there was a sense of helplessness because this is terrible. This is history unrolling, terrible events in front of you, and you're helpless to do anything, to have any control of it. So spending some time in that condition, I thought, I want to do something. And I wanted to collect money to give to Ukrainian women and children because I knew these are mostly for crossing the border. And uh, my friends, my students were very generous. They really wanted to help Ukrainians. I had, I think, $15,000 a month. And then I 
realized that I have a barrier everywhere. How to transfer this money to refugees? I didn't know. The Red Cross, this and that, the Ukrainian community. I went to the church, to, to the Ukrainian community, and every, everywhere was such a red tape that I said, no, I have to do it personally, hands from hands. But then how do I get to the border? My idea was to get to the border, to give that to people. Um, again, no way. And then suddenly, and now I, I really believe if you're truly focused on something, if you really want something, things will click. And one of the days, there was an application form on my computer. And this was from Jewish Distribution Committee. I have no idea how it came about, but I talked to, the, to many people. So I filled it in. An hour later, I got an invitation for an interview. An hour later. They set an appointment for next day. Then they emailed me a couple of hours later and said, can we move the interview? Can we do it immediately? I said, well, may I finish munching on my uh, sandwich and then we'll have an interview. And that's how it happened. They were in dire need. They needed volunteers. Obviously, the set of my skills, uh, my skill set uh, fit in because I um, speak Russian. I speak some Ukrainian. Uh, I came to Canada as a refugee myself. So obviously, I have that experience directly. Um, and before I knew, I just had to pack. I had only two days to process all the papers to get the form from the doctor and fly to Warsaw from Vancouver. You know, you were going into a war zone. Were you scared? Not really the war zone. Let's be specific about that. I was going to the border with Ukraine, but I was going to Poland. The war zone, good question. Uh, my first awareness, very uh, acute awareness that I am really close to the war zone uh, happened when I landed in uh, Warsaw and I was met with the representatives of the Jewish Distribution Committee. I must say these were all Poles working for them, not Jews necessarily. One was a soldier, the other was, I don't know what was his profession. They were very efficient and they asked me one question. They said, do you want to go to the hotel right now? Which would have been which would be a natural question because I just got off the plane. You know, it's 24 hours pretty much of flying. Or do you want to see what it's like? Can we take you to the border? I said, let's go to, they said, we need interpreters. I said, sure, let's go to the border. By that time, it was midnight, five hours on a bus from Warsaw to the border. It was totally dark. I didn't see any signs of a border. There were no usual fences or guards or anything like that. Uh, and it was bitterly cold, something I didn't expect. And that was my first encounter because on the right, I saw a German bus, German Red Cross. And on the left, on the ground, I saw empty stretchers. On the black ground, there were white stretchers to be filled with people. So what was happening? They were waiting, the Red Cross was waiting for uh, Ukrainian Holocaust survivors. Very quickly, in the first days of the war, Germany agreed to accept the Holocaust survivors. And the bus was coming from Ukraine, 
to Poland. It had to cross Poland and come to Germany, and that's where interpreters were needed. And that was my first encounter, the, the proximity, the danger of the war zone. Can you describe what it looked like, the the camp that you were working at? When I think of refugee camps, I tend to think of these fields of sort of long-term tents that people are staying in. This was not that, though. Um, this was not that Can you describe... All. I was called a first responder. So you're at the border. People either cross them by foot, literally, or by bus and some by their own cars. I saw a car with a sign, children, and the bullets on the side. So the sign that there are children does not help Russians to spare the car. So people are coming. They have, they don't know, they don't know where to go, what to do. They're hungry, so you meet them and you say, okay, here is, you can stay in this place, which is called a transition camp. I must emphasize that in the first three weeks after the beginning of the war, and so you're the first person who meets them, and that's one thing, right at the border, many of them were sitting in the tents initially. But it was so cold, they couldn't spend a night there. Where the Jewish uh, distribution committee comes to, they had a two-pronged task. The one is to help Jewish Ukrainians to get to Israel, because Israel agreed to take them. The other, to help anybody in need. And so they acted upon those both goals. Um, talking of the first goal, uh, and one case particularly, we found that person with a son. We put her in the car and said, we're going to take you to the hotel. And then there is a certain process. And then uh, you would be flown to Israel. And in the car, she said to me, I'm so afraid. I don't know if I'm Jewish. I think I'm only eight, eight, not Jewish. They would reject me. I... I had to calm her down, and I said, you know, you would not be rejected. Just calm down. When I say calm down, um, it's easy to say, but people were enormously traumatized, everybody. So that's one That's one part. The other part, there is a crowd coming on to you, children, uh, women with children. Some of them had as little as just a, a plastic bag in terms of their possessions. Uh, so you take them on a bus or they arrive in a, this transition center. Um, it works around the clock, 24 hours. Is it, is the transition center, is it like a big gymnasium or is it all outside? It's inside. Part of it is yeah. uh, heated. It's like a huge, uh, what do you call it? Where the plane. Uh, oh, like an airplane hangar. Yeah. Like a hangar, like, but, but huge. Yeah. So there would be cots side to side, um, there would be an area where the food is available available 24 hours. And in the center, there is an island, the kind of a heartbeat of that information center. Again, it's volunteers. There are maps um, unfolded in front because people don't know what to do next. And this is the crust of my story, I think. So they've arrived to Poland. Poland cannot accommodate them anymore. 
Imagine the situation when these Ukrainians have to choose between 27 countries. And particularly somebody from a village, middle-aged people who never traveled, they don't know what to do. They don't know where to go. I had one lady maybe in her 50s, and she was devastated. She said, I can't go to Denmark. I'm saying simple things. I said, look. She said, where is Denmark? I said, look, this is. Have a look at my map, and I show her on the uh, on my little telephone, and she says, "I'm used to eating potatoes. They probably don't grow potatoes there." I said, I, "I'm sure they have potatoes." <laughs> or you know, I need blood pressure medication. They probably don't have pharmacies. I said, "I'm sure they'll have pharmacies." Those are the the kind of things um, that you had to deal with. People really had to buy. To select and to drop of a head, where a hat, where to go. How how were you able to like these? These are such heavy, intense things. People are telling you. How are you able to, you know, hold all of that? With difficulty, I must say. And um, initially, the first two days, I was in a state of shock just from the sheer amount of human suffering. I talked to a friend of mine on the phone who was a psychologist back in Vancouver, and I said, you know, I'm not good at this job because I can barely contain my tears right. when I when I listen to them. And he said to me, that's okay. Hmm. He said, that's okay. And ah. did they did they know that you were of Russian origin? It's an interesting question. I certainly don't have any accent in Russian, but they did. Oh, you were speaking to them in Russian, so they well see, wouldn't. This was the uh, this was the war is happening in the east of Ukraine. Most people from the eastern part of Ukraine speak Russian. That's their first language. Very few of them speak Ukrainian. Mm. So you know. What was overriding is health. It wasn't a question of what language you speak. It wasn't a question at all. It's what you can do for them. So mm. it didn't matter. And right. nobody really asked me, nobody really asked me why do I speak Russian or how come I speak Russian so well. Well, I would tell them. I would tell them that I'm from Canada. I would tell mm. them that. In your book, you do emphasize often this thing that you just said, that they wanted to stay close to Ukraine. When I think about the Jewish story, I sort of think about people leaving, either being pushed out of their shtetls or uh, fleeing and, and wanting to go somewhere to build a better life. They have very negative feelings towards these war-torn places, these uh, that these villages that uh, the armies came through and destroyed them. That doesn't seem to be the mentality of the people that you met. Can you that's, talk about that? That's a very good point, Zach. Absolutely right. Um, we live in a different time now. This is a different era. Um, what I found is that they're very much attached to their land. The spot that I found that surprised me probably as much as you. You put all the efforts of finding the suitable country, suggesting something, all you hear, no, we can't go there, it's too far. 
the furthest we go to Germany because we are coming back. And I had a, a number of cases where I, let's put a quote and work quote, worked so hard to convince them to put them on a bus. And I know that they returned. Uh, one ret- couple returned to Dnipa, which is being bombed. Uh, the other returned, uh, to Zaporizhia that is being bombed. And how do you account for that? To me, that sounds, for me that I don't understand. Well, one thing is we have to remember that the people who were allowed to escape the country were women with children. Men had to stay back. So these are all the people who keep the trauma of separating from their families, their husbands, their sons. They're concerned about them. They want to go back. And also the other important thing, Ukraine, because I, for example, uh, immigrated from the Soviet Union. I did not want to go back to the Soviet Union, politically speaking. Ukraine has been free for 30 years. It may have corruption, it may have economically uh, not good, but it certainly had democracy, it certainly had freedom. And Ukrainians are very much attached to their to their land, to their little house, plus separated families. That's the only thing I can account for. Right. Because the question they ask, well, if we, okay, will we be able to return? This is a question that no Westerner can understand because the answer is nobody is going to hold you. You're free right. to go back and forth. And nobody asked me, will we be able to stay? Everybody was saying, will we be able to return? Well, I want to thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you very much. And that's what Jewish Canada sounds like for this episode of the CJN Daily, sponsored by Metropia. Integrity, community, quality, and customer care. We're a proud member of the CJN Podcast Network. Our executive producer is Michael Freeman. Thanks for listening. Jewish comedy legend Modi and Hasidic rapper Nisim Black are coming to Toronto to perform live at UJA's campaign launch on September 7th. Visit jewishtoronto.com to get your tickets today. Don't miss Modi and Nisim Black on September 7th. Go to jewishtoronto.com for your ticket today.